Welcome. Uh, this is the next podcast on the arterial circulation of the head and neck. It behoves us first to review a little uh, of uh, the territory we've covered uh, in the first head and neck uh, podcast regarding the carotid sheath. As a broad overview, there's a vertically disposed neurovascular bundle of the head and neck, or of the neck really, lying on each side of the median airway and foodway, each enclosed in the fascial carotid sheath and extending from the root of the neck to the base of the skull, lying on the sympathetic chain, which has already been previously described, and the prevertebral muscles also previously described. In the lower part of the neck, the bundle contains the internal jugular vein, with the common carotid artery medial and the vagus nerve behind and between. The carotid bifurcation is typically at the upper border of the thyroid notch, dividing into an internal carotid artery which inclines upwards and forwards to get to the carotid canal higher up and running together with the internal carotid nerve, which is a bundle of sympathetic fibres derived from the superior cervical ganglion. The bifurcation of the common carotid, which is typically at the C3-4 junction, or also at the level of the greater horn of the hyoid bone as a landmark, uh, I have uh, discussed as important in the surgical approach to carotid endarterectomy, and a high bifurcation, uh, or necessarily perhaps an approach to uh, a carotid body tumour, so-called chemodectoma, may uh, require a splitting of the posterior belly of the digastric so that you're getting under that to get at a higher carotid bifurcation. You can place a, um, uh, a vascular clamp onto the internal carotid. Uh, you can blindly fracture the styloid process by just pushing that medially, which provides an additional small point of room. And uh, some have even suggested dislocating or subluxing the temporomandibular joint on that side. That's uh, important, all of this, not just in access to the higher internal carotid bifurcation, but also if there is a so-called level 3 carotid vascular injury, you've got to be able to get to that level. Um, I discussed the internal jugular vein in the venous podcast, which assesses the venous drainage of the head and neck. That's the next one of these. And also the uh, dural venous sinuses, um, which are part of that next podcast. But briefly, the internal jugular vein descends vertically from the jugular foramen, forming just below the skull base with the inferior petrosal sinus, and with the glossopharyngeal vagus and accessory nerves, and the twelfth nerve, the hypoglossal, exiting the hypoglossal canal a little medially to the bundle, 9, 10 and 11 are coming down through the jugular foramen, uh, 12 coming through the hypoglossal canal a little medially, as I've said, to that bundle. And very high up, the 12th nerve is behind the internal carotid artery and descends in close alliance with the 10th nerve, where it receives a branch from the C1 ventral ramus, that is 12, and... Um, the 10, along with the superior root of the ansa cervicalis, remain inside the bundle, 
with the 12th nerve running more laterally over the carotid bifurcation, which is also a great landmark, and it's held down in place against the carotid sheath by that posteriorly disposed sternomastoid branch of the occipital artery. So the occipital artery is coming away from the posterior surface of the external carotid artery. It gives a little branch which directly hooks over the hypoglossal nerve at the carotid bifurcation. So these are all very relevant landmarks, um, particularly in a carotid endarterectomy. So if you're seeing a structure running across a dissected carotid bifurcation in your exams, that's usually the hypoglossal nerve. And at this point, the external carotid artery is the branch uh, with its own branches, uh, since the internal carotid artery, of course, has no branches in the neck. And that's typically a, a question that's asked as well, what is that artery or what's the difference there? The internal carotid has no branches. It's running at a deeper parapharyngeal level. The external carotid, which is the most visible initially sort of laterally um, disposed, has its uh, particular branches. And that's of relevance, obviously, in a carotid endarterectomy as well to define these different um, branches. Obviously vital for identification in cervical trauma as well. The external carotid artery at this level is often more superficial, as I've said, than the internal carotid artery, and uh, anteromedial, but parallel to the internal carotid artery, uh, which ascends on the pharyngeal uh, wall. Um, and um, the external carotid artery also ascends alongside the pharynx. It's giving branches to the foodway and the airway. And both arteries run, of course, under the posterior belly of the digastric and the stylohyoid muscle. Above this point, the external carotid artery turns more laterally and leaves the internal carotid artery by entering the deep surface of the parotid gland, which we've already considered in the second head and neck podcast. What gets to the back of the neck of the mandible, this is the external carotid artery, of course, it divides into its terminal branches, the superficial temporal and the maxillary artery. Maxillary artery has actually been discussed in the podcast already on the infratemporal and pterygopalatine fossa, that's AHN7. So these are fairly typical uh, things that are going to be asked about the external and internal carotid artery. The chances of being shown that on a viva or being asked that at a postgraduate or even an undergraduate anatomy level are almost 100% really. Because the ECA, the external carotid artery, has been displaced a little laterally, that explains why the styloid process, the stylopharyngeus, the ninth nerve, the styloglossus and the pharyngeal branch of the 10th nerve then all pass as structures between the internal and the external carotid arteries. So a simple way of thinking about that is that the structures going to the pharynx need to pass backwards between the internal carotid artery and the external carotid artery. And they actually include anything with the label pharyngeal on it. So you've got the ninth nerve, the glossopharyngeal nerve, the pharyngeal branch of the vagus, which is the motor supply to the pharynx and palate, and the stylopharyngeus, which is the archetypal muscle of the third branchial arch. And this territory, by the way, is also the point of passage of a congenital branchial fistula. So all of this is the relevant kind of clinical anatomy. 
Now, the job of the external carotid artery is the supply in the neck of the foodway and the airway, as I've already said. The job of the subclavian artery is the remainder of the neck, namely really the muscles and bones. And the job of the internal carotid artery is the arterial supply of the brain with a shared task with the vertebral. The orbital contents, the forehead, the anterior scalp, parts of the external and internal nose. Uh, we go through the blood supply of the nose and the nasal septum in a later podcast specifically as it applies to epistaxis. The rest of the head has an ECA or external carotid artery supply. Now I want to briefly review the carotid sheath before we get into the specific branches of note. It's a bit of a review of the original podcast on the uh, fascia of the neck. As the carotid sheath runs to the base of the skull, at its upper extent, it's attached to the petrous bone, as well as to the inferior part of the tympanic portion of the temporal bone, blending with the deeper layer of the parotid fascia. Some of these areas were considered in both AHN1 and AHN2 podcasts, if you need to revise those. At this level, it contains the internal jugular vein, the internal carotid artery, and the last four cranial nerves, with the pharynx supplied medially <clears throat> and above the styloid process with its three sloping muscles. Of course, the infratemporal fossa lies anteriorly, and really, in effect, the carotid sheath could almost be considered a posterior boundary of this fossa. If you're reviewing a skull, the carotid canal is immediately, as you can see, in front of the jugular foramen, with the twelfth canal, the hypoglossal canal, medially. At the base of the skull, therefore, the internal jugular vein lies behind the internal carotid artery, but ultimately the IJV slopes laterally so that the lower part, or lower down, it's, actual la it's actually lateral to the common carotid artery. The vagus nerve maintains its position, if you like, posteriorly in the groove between the two, with the ninth and 11th nerves emerging between the artery and the vein to diverge from one another, and with the 12th nerve passing from medial to the sheath, and then through the sheath, as we've said before, <coughs> really curling behind the inferior vagal ganglion to emerge between the common carotid artery and the internal jugular vein. And passing deep to both carotids is the superior laryngeal nerve and both of its branches, which we've already met, the internal and the external laryngeal nerves. We won't go through those again. A few little housekeeping rules uh, I would add here to remind us. The right common carotid artery, of course, arises from the brachiocephalic trunk behind the sternoclavicular joint, the left arising from the arch of the aorta directly and asymmetrically ascending to enter the neck posterior to the left sternoclavicular uh, joint. In the neck, the common carotid artery ascends on the subclavian and the vertebral artery to meet the prevertebral fascia on the transverse process of C6, the so-called carotid tubercle, or some texts refer to it as Chassignac's tubercle, which we've already met, and that's anterior to the inferior thyroid artery with the recurrent laryngeal nerve usually posteriorly located um, to the beginning of this rather important vessel, the ITA, and with the thoracic duct turning anterolaterally 
between the left inferior thoracic artery and the vertebral artery. So that's going on again to an area we've already covered on the root of the neck. Below the thyroid cartilage, the thyroid gland separates the carotids, really, from the pharynx, larynx, trachea and esophagus, with the left artery directly in apposition to the trachea inferior to the thyroid gland. One can notice in the dissection of the crook of the carotid bifurcation, the carotid sinus and the carotid body. Briefly, the carotid sinus is a gentle dilatation of the upper part of the common carotid artery and the adjacent origin of the internal carotid artery, where it is a pressoreceptor with heavy innervation and where local distension of the wall stimulates the afferent, that is the carotid sinus branch of the glossopharyngeal nerve, which then is relayed in the medulla at the cardiorespiratory centre. These are general visceral afferent cells. And then there's a reflex vagal slowing of the heart, which takes place with a fall in blood pressure. So that's the kind of carotid sinus reflex. The sinus has been injected, of course, in carotid endarterectomy, typically with prilocaine during manipulation of the bifurcation. And that's designed, again, to stop any uh, persistent bradycardia and hypotension during dissection. The carotid body is embedded in the bifurcation with a similar nerve supply, which also includes the vagus and the sympathetic nervous system involved with the carotid body and its response is to decrease oxygen tension uh, uh, pardon me is to a decreased oxygen tension or an increased co2 tension uh, which results in a kind of reflex respiratory change carotid body consists of two types of cells just for those interested the glomus cells which are type 1 as peripheral chemoreceptors and type 2 sustentacular or supportive cells. So the glomus type 1 are neural crests derived. They release a range of neurotransmitters, acetylcholine, ATP, dopamine. They influence the respiratory centre. As we know, tumours of these cells include the aortic body, the carotid body, the glomus jugulari tumours, non-chromophon paraganglionomas, and they consist histologically of round or other ovoid hypochromatic cells that are often grouped into an alveolus-like pattern with scant stroma and thin-walled large vascular channels. Uh, it's of clinical relevance just to know the area anatomically that we're talking about. So we get on now to, <coughs> to the external carotid artery, or the ECA and its branches, and their relevant anatomy. And this is, again, this just needs to be known completely what are all the branches of the ECA and something about them. In the carotid triangle, the ECA ascends directly on the pharynx across the branches, as I've said before, of the superior laryngeal nerve. The facial and lingual veins lie superficial, as does the 12th nerve, as we've already mentioned. And there is on its surface an external carotid plexus, which arises as sympathetic fibres from the superior cervical ganglion, very akin to the vertebral and subclavian plexi. And um, as I've stated, the ECA is at first medial to the ICA, and then it slopes upwards in front of the ICA, lying initially against the pharynx until that position is actually adopted by the ICA itself, which then lies against the pharynx right up to the skull base. 
So effectively, as the ECA splits in the deep part of the parotid, it's that part of the parotid gland that separates the ECA and the ICA, along with uh, what we haven't already labelled, um, uh, rather what, what, what we have already labelled as the pharyngeal structures that are running, as I've said, between these uh, arteries, the stylopharyngeus, the glossopharyngeal nerve and the pharyngeal branch of the vagus. Where the ECA starts, the IJV, the internal jugular vein, is typically lateral, but higher up the internal jugular vein is actually deep to the artery because the jugular foramen is, of course, more posterior than the carotid canal. So it's worth taking out, um, just looking at the base of the skull, just to kind of confirm that. Now, every student needs to be able to regurgitate the branches of the external carotid artery. I don't think you can get into an exam on anatomy, even if you're an undergraduate and you don't have that basic information. Before entering the parotid gland, there are typically six branches, three from the front, two from behind, and one medially. The three front ones are, of course, the superior thyroid, the lingual, and the facial. The two from behind run below and above the posterior belly of the digastric. They're the occipital and the posterior auricular, respectively. And then the medial one, which we tend to forget about a little bit, running alongside the pharynx, is naturally the ascending pharyngeal. I want to start with that. Some people think of that as the first uh, branch. So let's deal with this first, the ascending pharyngeal artery. Some regard it as the first branch of the ECA rather than the superior thyroid artery. The ascending pharyngeal runs deep to the uh, internal carotid artery, supplying the pharyngeal wall and the soft palate and even the tonsil, the eustachian tube, the medial wall of the tympanic cavity, and providing meningeal branches through nearby foramina, most notably the foramen lacerum, the jugular foramen, and the hypoglossal canal. And there's even some blood supply to the potential blood supply from the ascending pharyngeal to the hypoglossal, glossopharyngeal and vagus nerves. So it's actually an important vessel, we tend to forget about it. But this little mentioned artery gives off three branches contributing to the blood supply of the pharynx, prevertebral muscles, the middle ear and dura mater. And those are typically the pharyngeal branch, the inferior tympanic and meningeal branches. So we rarely discuss this artery, but it, it anastomoses with the ascending palatine branch of the facial artery, as well as with an ascending cervical branch of the vertebral artery. So it is, if you like, a natural little anastomotic pathway between the external carotid and the subclavian arterial system. The pharyngeal branches reach the soft palate between the superior constrictor and the levator palati muscle. The inferior tympanic artery goes through the tympanic canaliculus and one of the meningeal branches from this artery actually reaches as far as the cerebellar fossa via the jugular foramen where some people call it the posterior meningeal artery and it's really the, the terminal branch of the ascending pharyngeal so it can get right up um, to um, uh, really the uh, meninges of that uh, uh, posterior fossa. The ascending pharyngeal can occasionally arise, of course, from the occipital artery or from the common carotid artery, sometimes from the internal carotid artery itself or the facial artery. That's probably all one needs to know about the ascending pharyngeal artery, which usually isn't discussed very much. 
So we get on to the next one, which is the superior thyroid artery. We've discussed aspects of this before and its relationship to the external laryngeal nerve. We considered that artery actually in AHN2 on the neck viscera, as well as its special relationship to the nerve. The artery runs down to the thyroid vertically, and we know that apart from its apical split on the upper pole of the thyroid and anastomosis with the inferior thyroid artery, the STA or superior thyroid artery gives off actually a large branch, which is the infrahyoid or sometimes called the superior laryngeal artery, which pierces the thyrohyoid membrane with the internal laryngeal nerve. Uh, it's actually quite a big vessel running on the upper border of the infrahyoid muscles just below the hyoid bone. And um, the second artery that the superior thyroid gives is a sternomastoid branch to the lower part of the sternoclavicular. And that small artery can occasionally directly uh, arise from the external carotid, so you can get some variation of the sternomastoid blood supply. There may also, from the superior thyroid artery, be muscular branches directly to the infrahyoid muscles, as well as a separate infrahyoid artery, which joins its fellow below the thyrohyoid, which can be a remnant, actually, of the second aortic arch, and, as I've said, which runs along the lower border of the hyoid bone. The superior laryngeal artery typically supplies the upper larynx and pharynx. Uh, there may also be a cricothyroid branch, which can come off deep to the sternothyroid muscle, and that can run across the front of the cricothyroid and anastomose with its fellow on the other side on the cricothyroid membrane. So there can be some variation on the front of the uh, larynx. And this may have some significance, obviously, in a cricothyroidotomy, in an emergency situation as a source of bleeding. If that artery runs superficial to the sternothyroid, it can be clinically relevant. And it can also run more superficially with branches of the ansa cervicalis. So that there can occasionally be a, a, an anatomic variant which has clinical significance. The um, next artery is the lingual artery. That artery often forms a short upward loop off of the front of the ECA, passing forwards towards the tongue along the upper border of the hyoid bone, and then it runs typically under the back of the free end of the hyoglossus muscle, accompanied by the deep lingual vein. So it's fairly deep, and uh, the twelfth nerve may cross in front of it, along with a companion vein, which can open into the facial vein, so that the facial vein overlies, actually, the loop of the lingual artery, which is running deeply, as well as the hypoglossal nerve at that point. So a facial vein, or a common facial vein, as it's sometimes called, can be a marker there for the carotid bifurcation. The lingual artery has several discrete branches. There's a suprahyoid artery. It's kind of the homologue of the superior thyroid's infrahyoid artery. Of course, the lingual is coming off from the front of the ECA at a higher level, so it's kind of got a homologue as a suprahyoid artery. And it joins with its opposite side or opposite number on the opposite side, and it's a, a soft tissue vessel. There's a dorsal lingual artery, or sometimes a few of them, there can be two or three branches which arise beneath the hyoglossus muscle, ascending to the dorsum of the tongue and supplying the glossopalatine arch, the soft palate as far as the epiglottis with contralateral anastomosis. And it's also part of the palatine tonsillar supply. 
So there's this deep lingual artery running deep to the hyoglossus, on genioglossus, and supplying the dorsal and lateral aspect of the tongue. There is then a deep lingual artery, which some people have called a ranine artery, and that's the terminal part of the lingual artery after a sublingual artery is usually given off. And this deep lingual artery runs very tortuously on the undersurface of the middle of the tongue through the intrinsic longitudinal muscle of the tongue. It's obviously very tortuous to allow it to give with the protruding movements of the tongue. And it lies on the lateral genioglossus with the lingual nerve, but it's deep, as I've said, to hyoglossus. So it separates from the lingual nerve in both height and plane. The lingual nerve's running, of course, on top of the hyoglossus. And the deep lingual artery may anastomose at the tongue tip with the opposite uh, number, and with each running on either side of the tongue frenulum. At the front of the hyoglossus, a sublingual artery, as I've already briefly mentioned, is given off running between the genioglossus and the mylohyoid muscle, and that's running to the sublingual gland. And one part may pierce the mylohyoid and anastomose actually with the submental branch, which we remember as a little branch of the facial artery. Um, I should mention that a common facio-lingual trunk, common facial artery and lingual artery origin, uh, is uh, quite common. It's present in about 20% of cadavers. You can also get a thyrolingual common trunk, which is a little less common, and that occurs in about 7% of dissections. <clears throat> Next artery that we've got is the facial artery. That usually arises above the lingual artery from the front of the ECA, running upwards on the superior constrictor muscle deep to the digastric and the stylohyoid, and it grooves the back and the undersurface of the submandibular gland in a way I described in AHN2. That's important because when you come to a submandibular gland excision, the facial artery has to be usually ligated posteriorly to the gland and then on the superior surface as it winds around the mandible. If you don't do that, you can't mobilise the back and the top of the submandibular gland. If you can't mobilise the back of it, you can't see the deep part of the gland extending behind the free border of the mylohyoid. Um, coming back to the facial artery, as it's lying on the superior constrictor, it gives off a tonsillar branch to the tonsil and to the soft palate, and it runs around the edge of the mandible, as I've said before, where it gives off a very sizable submental artery in front of the masseter, which accompanies the nerve to the mylohyoid, supplying the muscles and the skin of the submental triangle but also sending perforators deep through the floor of the mouth to anastomose with the sublingual artery. And uh, the branches of the facial for completeness are an ascending palatine, which actually hooks over the upper border of the superior constrictor and which descends onto the palate with the levator palati muscle, passing really between the styloglossus and the stylopharyngeus. That's pretty small print. And then close to the levator, it divides into two branches, one of which pierces the superior constrictor to get to the auditory tube and the palatine tonsil. And that's supplemented by branches of both the lesser and the greater palatine arteries, which are coming from the maxillary. And it will then anastomose with the ascending pharyngeal arteries, as I said before, as well as the tonsillar branch of the facial artery. So there's 
quite a rich anastomosis in that part of the palate and the tonsil, the ascending pharyngeal artery, the um, palatine branch of the facial artery, the tonsillar branch of the facial artery, and even the greater and lesser palatine arteries, all forming a rich anastomosis. They're relevant, of course, during tonsillectomy. The other branch runs um, of the facial artery at this level runs with the levator palati, and it passes over the upper edge of the superior constrictor to get to the soft palate and anastomose with the descending palatine branch of the maxillary artery. So this is a natural collateral network, if you like, between the individual branches of the external carotid artery around the tonsil. So as I've said, the ascending palatine has those two branches dividing into that one branch towards the tonsil and the lower branch, which also ultimately moves towards the tonsil as well. There's usually a double branch system there. The second branch from this um, facial artery is a tonsillar artery, as I've said, separately, and that's superficial to the styloglossus, actually ascending between the styloglossus and the medial pterygoid muscle, again, a bit of a small print, although it does tend to perforate the superior constrictor and it reaches the palatine tonsil. There are, from the facial artery, some small glandular branches, as we've said, to the submandibular gland, and fourthly, as I've mentioned, the submental artery, which supplies the submandibular and sublingual glands and adjacent muscles and skin. And it's the largest of the cervical branches of the facial artery, actually. It divides into a superficial and a deep branch with the superficial anastomosing with the inferior labial artery, that's a branch of the facial, and the deep anastomosing with the inferior labial and the mental branch of the inferior alveolar artery. So again, there's another little um, uh, facial maxillary connection there as well. So there are little peripheral anastomoses between component parts of the external carotid, if you like, su superiorly, as we've said, with the palatine arteries uh, and the facial artery, and inferiorly now here uh, with the facial and maxillary connections as well. The arteries on the face, as well as the superficial temporal artery at the termination of the ECA, uh, I'm going to consider in another podcast on the face because we'll look at the blood supply, muscles, neural supply of that region. But briefly, there are, from the facial artery, inferior and superior labials. There are lateral, nasal and angular branches. The maxillary artery we've already considered in the podcast on the infratemporal and pterygopalatine fossae. Now, we come to the posterior surface of the external carotid, and the first of these is the occipital artery. And this arises from the back of the ECA, level with the facial artery, but running on the lower surface of the posterior belly of the digastric, and grooving the mastoid lateral to the rectus capitis lateralis muscle to pass through the posterior neck triangle. It's anterior to the internal carotid artery, the internal jugular vein, the vagus and the, hyper and the accessory nerve. And, of course, it supplies the back of the scalp. Now, before doing so, it gives off one or two branches to the sternocleidomastoid. We've mentioned this before. The upper branch can be a guide to the accessory nerve, and it holds down at its origin, as I've said, the 12th nerve, the hypoglossal nerve. And it typically pierces the trapezius about two to three centimetres off the midline with the greater occipital nerve. The artery has extensive muscular branches and connections. 
There's a mastoid branch supplying the bone and meningeal branches to the dura mater. This is the occipital artery we're talking about now. There's also a descending branch which passes deep to the semispinalis capitis and which anastomoses with a deep cervical artery, which is, as we recall, a branch of the costo-cervical trunk, the second portion of the subclavian artery. And so this is a mechanism where, as I've said before, there's an inbuilt anastomosis there between the second portion of the subclavian artery and the uh, upper reaches of the external carotid artery. Uh, so these are points of collateralization. Um, if one continues, uh, there is, um, for completeness, formal branches of the occipital artery, which we would include a sternomastoid branch of the occipital, auricular, which supplies the posterior neck and ear and posterior scalp and pericranium, mastoid, occipital, meningeal, the dura around the jugular foramen, the parietal foramen, the foramen magnum, the condylar canal, and a descending branch and muscular branches, as we've said before, which go to the regional muscles, which include the digastric, the rectus capitis lateralis, stylohyoid, superior and inferior oblique muscles in the suboccipital triangle of the neck, the rectus capitis posterior major and minor, the semispinalis capitis and the splenius. So it's quite a complex little artery for anastomosis, which is soft tissue anastomosis. Just very briefly again, a sternomastoid branch, auricular cutaneous uh, branches, mastoid occipital branches, meningeal branches, and kind of muscular branches. So it's a little bit more complex than we normally think of. Rarely the occipital artery can actually arise from the external carotid artery directly, uh, or even from the thyrocervical trunk, the inferior thyroid artery, or even the vertebral artery. So you can get these variations. In about 15% of cases, there's actually a common occipitoauricular trunk for the origin of the occipital and the posterior auricular artery. And in about 20% of cases, the posterior meningeal artery, which I spoke, which remember is a branch of the ascending pharyngeal, can actually arise from the occipital. And this makes sense really to supply the dura around the posterior skull foramenae. That variation actually makes a little anatomical sense. We come on to the final branch we want to mention. We're not talking about the superficial temporal artery and the maxillary arteries, terminal branches. So we're left only with the posterior auricular artery. That runs above the posterior belly of digastric, crossing the surface of the mastoid. And it's often a source of bleeding in the back of a Blair parotidectomy incision. We discussed that incision in AHN2. But uh, this posterior auricular artery has pinna branches. It has a stylomastoid branch which enters the stylomastoid foramen and actually supplies the facial nerve. And it gives rise to a starpedial artery which supplies the starpedius and which is actually embryologically the remnant artery of the second branchial arch. Remember that the facial artery is that artery, but its real remnant here is the posterior auricular or so-called stylomastoid artery, really a branch of the posterior auricular artery. More formally, its branches include, as I've said, a stylomastoid artery, a posterior tympanic, auricular branches, an occipital branch, a parotid branch, and some perforating muscular branches. 
It supplies part of the external auditory hiatus, the tympanic cavity and the tympanic membrane as well as the semicircular canals and the mastoid antrum cells. So just to reiterate, as I've said, if one wanted to think of it as one, the stylomastoid artery, two, the posterior tympanic artery, supplying the back of the tympanic membrane, contrasted with the anterior tympanic from the maxillary, so that there's a kind of little vascular circle around the inner tympanic membrane. If we remember, the first portion of the maxillary artery gives rise to a deep auricular and an anterior tympanic this forms a little anastomosis with the so-called posterior tympanic from the posterior auricular around the tympanic membrane. Again, another maxillary external carotid artery anastomosis. The third branch of the, um, of the posterior auricular, as I've said, are the auricular branches for the medial surface of the auricle, the extrinsic auricular muscles, the auricularis anterior, superior and posterior. The fourth is then the occipital branch, for the postro superior auricle and the occipito frontalis, the fifth, the parotid branch, and the sixth are really perforators to the sternocleidomastoid uh, muscle, the digastric, and the stylohyoid. And we next move to the internal carotid artery. The internal carotid artery in the neck, firstly. It starts off lateral, as we've said, to the external carotid artery at its origin but it soon slopes up posteriorly to occupy a more medial and a deeper level alongside the pharynx with no branches to the carotid canal anterior to the internal jugular vein and the jugular foramen. Behind, outside the sheath, is of course the sympathetic chain and the longest capitis muscle. The superior laryngeal branch of the vagus runs behind to its medial side uh, and the ascending pharyngeal artery is also medial. The internal jugular vein is lateral with the vagus in between, and it's crossed by the lingual and the facial veins, as well as by the occipital artery and the hypoglossal nerve with the superior root of the ansa cervicalis running down along it, embedded in the carotid sheath. And higher up, it's crossed by the posterior belly of digastric, the stylohyoid, the posterior auricular artery, as well as by those structures that separate it from the external carotid arteries we said before, the stylopharyngeus, the glossopharyngeal nerve, and the pharyngeal branch of the vagus, everything with pharynx attached to it as its name. So that's all we need to know really about the internal carotid artery in the neck. The next area is the vertebral artery. We have discussed that a bit before, but not in specific terms. It's been discussed with the Scalene Musculature podcast. But the vertebral artery, the first branch of the subclavian, is principally distributed to the brain arising at the sternoclavicular joint and ascending between the longus collie muscle and the scalenus anterior into the foramen transversarium of the sixth cervical vertebra. It's posterior to the common carotid artery, the inferior thyroid artery and the vertebral vein, but it's anterior to the ventral ramus of the 7th and 8th cervical nerves. Always, as we remember, everything is vein artery nerve. We're looking at the femoral veins, vein artery nerve from medial to lateral. You're looking at the intercostal neurovascular bundle from above to below. It's vein artery nerve. Here it's also the same vein artery nerve the vertebral vein, 
the vertebral artery and then the nerve, which is C8 or C7, C8. We can also think of the stellate ganglion laterally, all against the neck of the first rib. For good measure, everything is vein, artery, some structure. If you're looking at the lung root, uh, for example, from front to back, it's vein, usually superior and inferior pulmonary veins, artery and bronchus. That's the same thing. If you look at the kidney uh, from front to back, it's vein, artery, ureter. If you're looking at the biliary tree in Kalo's triangle, then it's vein, artery, bile duct, in a sense from vein, portal vein, hepatic artery, bile duct. So it's the same orientation in everything, and this is no different. Um, so uh, basically the stellate ganglion lying partially behind the artery and medial sending branches as a plexus around the artery, which we call the vertebral plexus. So that explains why it looks like that. And behind the, on the left thoracic, uh, the thoracic duct crosses the vertebral artery anteriorly. And then for completeness, the vertebral veins behind the internal jugular vein, they enter the brachiocephalic vein near its formation, passing out of the sixth foramen transversarium and sometimes even the seventh which is often empty, but it may house a vertebral vein. And at the top, the vertebral artery joins its fellow, of course, to form the basilar artery, supplying the upper part of the spinal medulla, the medulla oblongata, the pons, the cerebellum, the midbrain, and the posterior cerebrum. The vertebral artery has four parts, traditionally, anatomically. The first part is the um, branch of the first part of the subclavian artery. The second part passes through the foramen of transversaria with the vertebral veins and the sympathetic plexus, as I've already mentioned, the vertebral plexus, anterior to the ventral rami of the cervical nerves between the transverse processes. The artery turns laterally in the foramen transversarium of the axis and then bends upwards to enter the foramen transversarium of the atlas, which is the most lateral it's a very good picture if you've got uh, Cunningham's uh, book on anatomy, um, figure 73, which is on page 94, is a very good example of that. But it's here that the vertebral artery in its second part provides a spinal branch into each intervertebral foramen at each level. The third portion of the artery then appears on the superior surface of the atlas, between the rectus capitis lateralis and the superior articular process of the atlas, and it curves horizontally with the ventral ramus of C1, grooving the posterior arch of the atlas in the depths of the suboccipital triangle. That's one approach of it, lying above C1, and then it leaves that triangle by passing medially in front of the posterior atlanto-occipital membrane. And it lies in the depth of the triangle just above C1, as I've said, the suboccipital triangle between the superior and inferior oblique muscles on the posterior, directly on the posterior arch of the atlas. And to get to it, one actually has to split, if we're looking at it posteriorly, the trapezius, the splenius, the semispinalis, and that then exposes below the inferior oblique, laterally the superior oblique, and superiorly the rectus capitis posterior major. Um, and the artery is actually sort of bowed backwards at that point uh, to accommodate the atlantoaxial movements and the variation in shape and width of the atlanto-occipital membrane. The fourth portion is that the artery then turns superiorly and it has to then pierce the dura mater and the arachnoid 
enter the cranial cavity through the foramen magnum in front of the uppermost ligamentum denticulatum. That's another podcast when we're talking about the uh, spinal cord and the, uh, also the uh, uh, basic structure of vertebrae. But it then runs the artery on the medulla oblongata between the rootlets of the first cervical and the hypoglossal nerve. And at the lower border of the pons, it unites with the opposite vertebral artery to form the basilar artery, which runs in the basilar cistern until it divides into the two posterior cerebral arteries. And these give off a posterior communicating, which anastomoses with the middle cerebral artery. So there's a, a vertebral ICA uh, communication there. Now, to just summarise, there are no branches of the vertebral artery from the first part. There are spinal and muscular branches from the second and third parts, which anastomose with occipital and deep cervical branches, as we've briefly already mentioned. And the fourth part has a meningeal branch and a series of medullary branches to the medulla oblongata and the spinal medulla. I should comment also on the vertebral vein that around the third part of the artery, there's a plexus of veins forms from the union of the internal vertebral venous plexus and the veins of the suboccipital triangle, anastomosing in the second part of the artery the, at that level, at any rate, with the internal vertebral venous plexus and the deep cervical veins, ending as a couple of usually veins which pass anterior to the subclavian artery from the level of the sixth uh, foramen transversarium, and they enter the posterior surface as a vertebral vein. Uh, they enter the posterior surface of the brachiocephalic vein. Um, and as I've already stated, there may be a few veins which can traverse the seventh foramen transversarium. So there is this natural anatomical variation. So to summarise, that's a bit complicated, but the segments are pre-foraminal, if we're talking about the vertebral artery, that is from the subclavian artery to the transverse foramen of C6. They could be classed as foraminal from the transverse foramen of C6 to C2, and then extradural from the transverse foramen of the axis to the vertebral canal, and intradural to the inferior border of the pond. So that's another nice way of thinking of the individual segmental branches of the vertebral artery. The branches are anterior and posterior spinal, sometimes the latter arising from the posterior inferior cerebellar. The posterior inferior cerebellar itself, meningeal branches, medullary branches and basilar branches. The pica, which is the posterior inferior cerebellar artery, is actually the largest and the most tortuous branch among the rootlets of the, uh, weaving its way among the rootlets of the hypoglossal uh, vagus and glossopharyngeal nerves. And it supplies the medulla oblongata and the choroid plexus of the fourth ventricle and the cerebellum, varying really inversely in size with the anterior inferior cerebellar, cerebellar artery, although it's usually much bigger than that. Uh, the, these two can uh, uh, vary in size with one another depending on which is the dominant. So the vertebral artery or discussion of the vertebral artery means that we then move into the basilar artery and that runs in front of the pons lying against the dorsum celli of the sphenoid bone and it gives off the anterior inferior cerebellar artery which we've just mentioned 
and many pontine branches. So this is a point of vertebral basilar connection. The labyrinthine artery is a branch of that's a branch of the anterior inferior cerebellar, or directly can come from the basilar artery. And the basilar ends at the upper pons as the posterior cerebral arteries after giving off the superior cerebellar branch. So the branches of the basilar, the anterior inferior cerebellar artery that supplies the abducent facial and vestibulocochlear nerves and the anterior inferior part of the cerebellum, that's why it's labelled as that, as well as the labyrinthine artery, the artery of the labyrinth which accompanies the vestibulocochlear nerve and which also supplies the seventh nerve. So these are specific little neural branches as well, so they're extremely functionally important. As well, of course, pontine branches, as we've said. The superior cerebellar is another uh, branch of it, and it winds around the pons and the middle cerebellar peduncle, also supplying part of the midbrain superiorly. And there are many little delicate branches to the cerebellum inferior to the tentorium at this level. The posterior cerebral artery at the superior border of the pons sends fine posteromedial central branches into the ventral midbrain, there, the so-called posterior perforated substance there, and then passes to the occipital lobe as the posterior choroidal, which supplies the choroidal plexus in the hemisphere near the lateral and third ventricles, as well as temporal, occipital, calcarine and collateral sulci. So there's quite an important supply there to the occipital lobe. And the posterior cerebral artery and the superior cerebellar supply the superior and inferior midbrain and are above and below um, the oculomotor and trochlear uh, nerves. Um, we will discuss neuroanatomy at a later stage, including uh, uh, the uh, blood supply uh, to the brain, but this is not part of this particular uh, head and neck podcast series on the head and neck itself. It leads us uh, a little bit further along in our discussion um, to um, the one other area that I want to mention, uh, even though we'll consider this again at a later stage in another whole different podcast series on neuroanatomy, is the circle of Willis or the circulus arteriosus. At this level, we can talk about it briefly. But an image is provided, uh, I think uh, I may provide an image on our Anatopod site, um, an it's an arterial circle is created from the posterior cerebral artery, the posterior communicating, running through the interpeduncular system to join the uh, internal carotid of the anterior perforated substance, the anterior cerebral and the anterior communicating, which extends from the superior border of the pons to the longitudinal fissure lying mostly in the interpeduncular fossa and uh, is a small vessel uniting the anterior cerebrals in the chiasmatic cistern below the rostrum of the corpus callosum. So just to reiterate again, this is really the posterior cerebral, the posterior communicating, the anterior cerebral, and the anterior communicating systems. Um, basically, the blood enters the system via either internal carotids or the basilar artery, and then it's distributed to the cerebral hemispheres. The branches coming off of this little circle are cortical or central, and they differ from one another in the extent of their anastomoses, with the central branch rather slender and multiple, 
piercing the brain substance to supply its interior and with the largest collection of these passing through the anterior and the posterior perforated substances respectively and without any significant anastomoses within the brain substance itself. By contrast, the cortical branches actually ramify over the surface of the cortex and anastomose fairly freely on the pia mater, entering the cortex at right angles with multiple branches that also don't anastomose within the brain substance. So damage at the pia level may actually have little effect, unlike damage to these perforating vessels, uh, which are more uh, end vessels into the brain substance. And these effects are enhanced by the extensive sympathetic network which runs on these small vessels. So in summary, the cerebral hemispheres and the walls of the diencephalon are supplied by both the internal carotid artery and the vertebral artery with an oversupply, if you like, to the grey matter with superficial cortical arteries supplying the grey and perforators, the subcortical nuclei. The internal carotid artery and vertebral systems anastomose around the optic chiasm and infundibulum of the pituitary stalk as that circle of Willis. It's also called the polygon of Willis in some rather old text, and that allows an equalisation, really, of blood flow between the two sides of the brain. The only structures encircled by the circle of Willis are the optic chiasm and the pituitary stalk, as I've just said. 90% of subarachnoid hemorrhages, for example, are from rupture of an aneurysm in the circle vessels, with congenital aneurysms found more on the carotid part of the circle than the basal part, and they're more common at the vessel branches, for example, the anterior cerebral with the anterior communicating, the internal carotid artery with the posterior communicating, or the middle cerebral. Uh, At the point of in a sense, the greatest weakness of the tunica media. So once we understand the circle of Willis, we understand a little bit about where these aneurysms appear. The posterior communicating passes posteriorly across the crus cerebri, and it gives off minute branches to the crus and the optic tract, the pituitary and the hypothalamus. It can be pretty large, and the PCA inversely then becomes quite a small vessel, leading, if occluded, to infarction of the PCA territory. So this kind of dynamic is important. It's a little bit like the um, uh, coronary um, um, dominance thing. This is also an inverse relationship between the posterior communicating and posterior cerebral size. The anterior choroidal artery arises superiorly to that posterior communicating, gives branches into the crus cerebri, and it turns superiorly to the medial temporal lobe to enter the choroid plexus of the inferior horn of the lateral ventricle. The anterior cerebral runs to the longitudinal fissure where it joins its fellow by the, um, in a sense, the horn of the anterior communicating, just anterosuperior to the optic chiasm. And, and then it bends up to run on the medial surface of the hemisphere, sort of out of view. And there are, in relation to this vessel, several slender branches which pierce the brain anterior to the optic chiasm and which enter the hypothalamus. And there are some branches to the optic chiasm and the optic nerve itself. And there are one or more recurrent branches which run backwards to the anterior perforated substance, sending little medial striate vessels, which are uh, um, called in some books the anteromedial central. It's a bit of a complex name. Branches into the brain 
and there are also cortical branches, which we've already briefly described. And then we're left with the middle cerebral artery, that's a large vessel lying directly in line with the internal carotid to catch embolic debris, of course, and it runs laterally in the stem of the lateral sulcus, breaking up into branches on the insula, which separates the temporal from the frontal and parietal lobes. The surfaces supplied by these emerging branches also supplying the adjacent parts um, of the orbital and tentorial surfaces and including most of the sensory and the motor cortices, the entire auditory area of the cerebral cortex. So the MCA is a pretty vital vessel. And here the central branches are numerous with small lateral striates, so-called anterolateral central arteries, which pass superiorly through the anterior perforated substance to the deep hemispheric nuclei, mostly to the uh, corpus striatum. So we'll cover this area a bit more in the neuroanatomy sections, but briefly the overview is that the arterial supply of the cerebrum is via three cerebral arteries, the anterior, middle and posterior. There's a contribution from the anterior choroidal, although uh, that's not cortical, and this vessel arises from the termination of the internal carotid artery and its neighbours, the posterior cerebral artery and the middle cerebral artery. These three cerebral arteries and astomos across the frontiers of the cerebral hemispheres on the surface of the pier. However, their perforators are, as I've said before, end vessels. Larger surface vessels are sympathetically innervated, but intracortical ones are not. And generally, within the MCA territory, as I've described it, lie the motor and sensory areas for the opposite half of the body, excluding the leg and the perineum, which are in the anterior cerebral artery territory, as well as the auditory and the speech cortex. The motor and sensory areas for the opposite leg and perineum, including, by the way, micturition and defecation centres, lie in the anterior cerebral artery territory, where, because of the anastomosis here of the anterior communicator, it's often possible for one anterior cerebral artery territory to be supplied with blood from the contralateral internal carotid artery. And that occlusion will result in blindness in one eye with contralateral hemiplegia as a presentation. So it affects the sensory capsule and the ophthalmic artery. So our knowledge of the anatomy of these uh, cerebral vessels affects obviously the stroke presentation. The PCA affects the visual cortex for the opposite visual field, but the MCA, middle cerebral artery, can extend as far back to supply the macular part of the visual area. The normal embryonic pattern is for the posterior cerebral artery to arise from the internal carotid artery rather than the adult position of the proximal end becoming actually the posterior communicating. That's a little bit smaller print. The long central or so-called striate branches which supply the internal capsule and the thalamus and the basal nuclei uh, are afforded particular names and they include the perforating, the lenticulostriate which we know affects the internal capsule, the thalamostriate and the thalamolenticular and these are for another time. And in principle an anterior cerebral occlusion will then, or should then, lead to complete contralateral hemiplegia and hemianesthesia of the leg, arm and face. But it can be distal to a recurrent branch of Hubner, as it's called, H-E-U-B-N-E-R, 
which supplies the posterior part of the internal capsule, so that actually only the opposite leg is affected. The middle cerebral artery occlusion leads to complete contralateral hemiplegia and hemianesthesia with aphasia if the lesion is left-sided. The PCA, or occlusion of that, contralateral hemianopia and hemianesthesia. The anterior choroidal leads to contralateral hemiplegia, hemianesthesia and hemianopia. Now, uh, the next head and neck podcast, um, which will appear next week, is on the venous system of the brain, head and neck, and includes the dural venous sinuses. Thanks very much. Thank you.